Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 2 Kings 22, 1 through 11, and 2 Kings 23, 1 to 3. The word of God speaks to us. Josiah was eight years old when he, became, when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adaiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house." But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And all the people joined in the covenant. This is God's word to us. Awesome. Hey, can we give her a hand? Uh, That was tough. Good job, Anna. She drew the short straw today on scripture reading. Hey, uh, if you're just joining us, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors. Uh, The reason why we do this, every Sunday we gather, we stand up and we read the scriptures together. uh, That's not just so we're honoring the word of God. Really what it's saying as a physical posture is that we want to be people who stand underneath the word of God. Uh, You can stand on top of scripture and be your own authority and interpret your own life your own way. Or you can stand underneath the word of God and let it define you and it interpret you and it kind of be the lens by which you see the world. And that's our desire. So we stand every week together to do that. That's what we're doing. So thanks for doing that. That was a really tough passage. You did better than I will do here in just a minute. So, um, hey, uh, a couple of things as we're jumping in today. If you're just joining us and you are, um, you're not really uh, sure that you believe what we believe or feel like you belong here, man, I just want to say welcome to you. It's an honor to have you. Uh, we're really glad that you're here. So if there's stuff that we can do to make you feel more at home or answer questions that you have, just tell us. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor to have you with us today. We are not 
good people that have gathered together to celebrate our goodness. We are forgiven people who have gathered together, gathered together to remember what Jesus has done for us. So if you're feeling like your life is a mess or you don't have it all together, then you're in a really good spot because we're all there with you. Uh, so thanks for being with us. A couple of things coming up that I want you to kind of have on your radar. The first is we normally take books of the Bible and we preach our way through books of the Bible. That's sort of our bread and butter as a church. We're starting the year by doing something a little bit different. What I want to do is I want to lay some foundations for us uh, over the next few weeks. We're going to lay some foundations on some very kind of essential things for us as a church. So today, we're going to be talking about the Word of God. Next week, we're going to be talking about the people of God. And then in three weeks, we're going to be talking about the mission of God. And so, and when we get to uh, that, that third week talking about the mission of God, we'll probably spend about three or four weeks unpacking the mission of His church and the mission the mission of this church here, Frontline Church. So that's coming up. Uh, We will eventually get back to going through books of the Bible, but things are going to look a little bit different as we start the year uh, heading into 2024. The second thing I want you to be aware of is coming up on February 9th and 10th, you ladies particularly, put this on your calendar. We're going to be having a feminine virtue conference, Frontline Downtown. So all of our congregations are going to be gathering together. Uh, This is for you ladies who have uh, friends, coworkers, neighbors, whatever. Uh, You you are absolutely invited and do anything in your power to make this. It's going to be really, really good. Last year, what we did was we uh, leaned into what it looks like to be mature, godly, masculine men. We did a, a men's conference downtown, and then we followed that up with a three-week sermon series on uh, the virtues that men need to be putting into their lives. Uh, we're going to do the same for our ladies. So we're going to talk about fem- feminine virtue. The ladies are going to be leading that gathering downtown. Then we'll be preaching a series on feminine virtue coming up. And I just want to say that in a culture like ours that doesn't even know how to answer a basic question, like what is a woman? Uh, we, we need this as a church. We actually need to be the people who can stand up and offer the world an answer to the question, and not just a generic one, but a beautiful one. We believe that everything the Bible teaches is good and beautiful and right, and we want to hold it up, and we want to talk about that. So that's going to be on February 9th and 10th. Mark your calendars. That's going to be really fun. Sound good? Yes. Okay, I love it. The nine was like, wah, wah. They, they hated everything I had to say. So thanks for being a little little bit happier than the nine o'clock service. They're terrible. I'm just kidding. All right. Hey, let me pray for us and uh, we'll we'll get after it today. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to gather and to open up the word. We just ask today that you would meet us in our need, meet us in our longing, meet us in those those places where um, we don't even feel. It's, It's tough today to talk about something so essential And knowing that in my heart and in the hearts of other people in the room, some of us are just struggling to feel deeply. After the holidays, after the busyness, after the sicknesses that everybody's had, we're just, we're sort of tired and weary. And today, we pray that you would meet us in all of our need. Thank you that you don't demand things of us that we can't do, that that rather than making demands on us, Father, thank you that you sent Jesus to keep those demands in ways that we could not. So today, we pray that you would remind us of the essential nature of the Word of God. As we look at the Word of God, I pray that you would cultivate a love for Scripture in this church. And not just a love for data or content. We don't want that. We want a love for your Word that shapes us. We want our lives to be formed by this book. So help us. Come and move. Meet my friends that have questions today. Pray these things in your name. And all God's people said...
Amen. In 2007, there were some garage sale hunters that were in upstate New York, and they traveled around buying various stuff at garage sales. They visited a yard sale in New York, and they found this little ceramic bowl that they liked, so they bought the bowl for $3. Here's a picture of the bowl. This is the bowl that they bought. They went home. They put that on their mantle in their living room, sort of haphazardly set it there, and it just sat there for six years collecting dust. And then eventually they had someone over at their house who knew a little bit about ceramic bowls, I guess, and noticed something particular about this bowl. And was like, hey, you really need to get this bowl checked out. I think you should get a professional to appraise this bowl. So they did. For whatever reason, they went, they reached out to a professional, they got it appraised, and that bowl later sold for $2.2 million because it's a thousand-year-old bowl from the Northern Song Dynasty that had been completely lost to history. You've heard stories like this before, and if you're anything like me, your first reaction is like, how do I have that happen to me? I'm going to go buy a bunch of garbage and just hope that it's worth money. I mean, I, I feel this urge to do that, and I keep, I mean, this is, we have whole shows devoted to buying trash and nonsense, and that somehow ends up to be a lot of money. So my first reaction is that. My second reaction is like, how does that happen? How does it happen that a bowl from a thousand years ago gets lost to history? It got passed down at some point to a family member or a friend, and then to another family member or friend, and you keep going, and a thousand years later, it lands in upstate New York, and it's a thousand-year-old bowl from this epic dynasty from long ago. It's unbelievable. How does that happen? Well, today what we're talking about is something even more valuable than a ceramic bowl from China. We're talking about something even more significant and valuable that is so easily lost in our culture and needs to be rediscovered, needs to be found. Today we're talking about what happens when the Word of God gets lost to history and then rediscovered again. Now, I know that when I say that, the reality is kind of weird, right? Because most of us in this room have a Bible in our hands. In fact, what's even more bizarre is most of us have our Bibles everywhere we go because it's on our phone in our pocket. And there's this big difference that happens between having access to a Bible. Most of you know where your Bible is in your house. Most of us have probably more than one physical Bible in our house. You have it on your phone. There's a difference between that reality and actually on a functional level, having the Word of God inside of you, having the Word of God as, a, as a, an authority in your life. There's a big difference there. And I think that this story in 2 Kings of this young King Josiah who rediscovered scripture is actually framing up for us what you and I need to do as we head into 2024. So that's where we're headed. But let me give you some context because we're sort of parachuting into the middle of the Old Testament. And for most of you, First and Second Kings is not like your favorite part of scripture. You may not know much about First and Second Kings. So let me just briefly give you a you are here moment. So what happens is God uh, delivers his people out of Egypt And he, after 400 years of them being enslaved, he brings them safely across the Red Sea, and he's eventually going to take them to the promised land. But before they get to the promised land, they pause at Mount Sinai. And what happens at Mount Sinai is that God comes down literally to Moses, and he delivers 
the law. Now, when we think of the law, we often think of the Ten Commandments, right? We think of the Ten Commandments or something like that. But the law for the people of Israel was also called uh, the Pentateuch, which means the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So what God is actually giving his people at Mount Sinai is the first five books of their Old Testament, the Word of God, the law, the Scriptures. And for them, this told them everything they needed to know about who God was and who they were as his unique people in the world and what he expected of them and how they were supposed to live in the world as his unique people. That's what the word of God was doing for the people of God. But by the time you get to First and Second Kings, things are really bleak and things are really dysfunctional. The word of God continues to get forgotten and it continues to get uh, sort of put on the shelf metaphorically, as it were, collecting dust. And what happens over time is instead of the people of God drifting into more and more maturity and health and goodness... They drift into something that's really catastrophic. They start to look more like the pagan societies around them than they do the unique people of God, and they totally reject God and his ways as revealed in his word. This happens again and again, and over time it gets so bad that the people eventually tell God, hey, we want a king like all the other nations, and God, who is slightly offended by that because he is their king. So they're essentially saying, we don't want you to be our king. We want a human king. God says, hey, I wanted to be your king. And if you want a human king, that will not go well for you. Ah, we don't care. We want a human king. So God says, yes, he gives them what they want. They get their human king. But what happens is after all these kings come, the overwhelming majority of them are a complete train wreck and wreak havoc and dysfunction on the people of God. In fact, there's a list in First and Second Kings of 39 different kings. And every king, right when you're introduced to the king, every king is evaluated with this phrase, this king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or this king did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Their entire life and the way that they ruled over God's people is summarized in the first sentence when they're introduced. And out of the 39 kings that are mentioned, there were only four of them that, quote, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That meant that all the other kings did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the worst of the worst of the worst of them was a king by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh was the worst king in Israel's history. In fact, what he did is he desecrated the temple of God, this sacred gathering space where the presence of God was meant to dwell. He totally desecrated it, and not only did he neglect taking care of it, but he brought pagan practices and pagan gods like Baal and the goddess Ashura, uh, and he brought those pagan gods and goddesses into the temple and was basically populating pagan worship instead of the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. And Manasseh was so bad that one of his sons, he actually burned in a sacrifice to the god Molech. If you ever read about the god Molech, how people would sacrifice their children to that god, well, this king, this king of Israel that was supposed to lead the people of God, he actually sacrificed one of his own sons to this pagan god, Molech. And then he eventually dies. And then after uh, Manasseh comes, Ammon comes. Ammon is his son, one of his other sons, and Ammon takes 
after his father Manasseh and does horribly evil things. In fact, his name, he's actually named after the Egyptian sun god, and he does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he ends up getting killed uh, in a coup. The people of Israel kind of oversee this coup, trying to take over him, and he dies in that. Now, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to go through every king in the people of Israel's history. So buckle up. We're gonna, I'm just kidding. That's it, right? That's it. So, so Manasseh's bad. Ammon's bad. The last king is a guy by the name of Josiah, son of Ammon. And Josiah, we read, God does something in his heart as a young boy where he suddenly starts to desire to not take after his fathers. He suddenly desires to not be like Manasseh, to not be like Ammon. He wants to be different. He actually wants to learn about who God is, and he wants to recover the work of God for the people of God. Now, this is a really dark time in Israel's history, and by the time that Josiah lands on the scene, think about this, the Bible, the Word of God, had been totally lost for 57 years. 57 years, they had no access to the Word of God. It was physically lost. They could not find a single scripture for 57 years. It was a dark moment. Now, I want to pause, and I want to just try to make a connection between their culture in our culture, though we don't have kings and though we don't physically have the Bible lost in our society, the Bible, in a fact, really, to be honest, is the, the, the most uh, fast-selling, most accessible book in all of history. More people have this book than any other book in the history of books, so it's pretty crazy. But we also live in a society where, like the people of Israel in the Old Testament, we have decided to, in some ways, reject God and be our own authority. And in a sense, the Word of God is lost even in a Bible Belt culture like ours. I want you to think about this with me, that D.A. Carson, this great theologian and scholar, says that it only takes three generations for the gospel to be totally lost. The first generation believes the gospel and teaches it. The second generation just assumes the gospel and doesn't teach it. And by the time you get to the third generation, guess what happens? Third generation loses the gospel altogether. I would want to make the case that you and I sort of live in that third generation moment where we had great grandparents or grandparents that believed the gospel and taught the gospel. Our parents, many of us, uh, kind of assumed that gospel reality, and we've sort of inherited a generation of people that have just lost the gospel or lost the word of God in a real way. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because here we are in a church with Bibles open, and I want to make the case to you that the word of God is on a functional level lost even among many people in this room. How can I make such a statement? Well, let me give you two ways that we often approach the Bible that I think are broken and distorted. The first is what I'll just call the conservative approach to the Bible. And what I mean by this is blind but illiterate belief. Many people, and this is the type of culture that I grew up inside of, had a high view of the Bible. We would have said, if you pressed us, we believe the Bible. In fact, the statement I heard in, in church growing up, all my, like my whole life growing up in church was, the Bible says it, and I believe it, so does anybody know how to finish the sentence? That settles it. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Why even have any further conversation? No more questions. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. The problem is, even though most people today say they believe the Bible, in fact, according to Barna research, about 85% of evangelical Christians say the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. While that's true, think about this. 53% believe that, quote, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 
I believe the Bible, but we don't know what it says. Uh, 59% say the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. So more than half of the people polled don't even know that the third person of the Trinity is a person. I think it's a force like Star Wars. And then most startlingly, 71% of evangelicals in this study said that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. For the record, Jesus was not created. He is the one who is the uncreated creator of all things. And to say that he's the first and greatest being created by God is literally heretical. (laughs) We should be careful about what we call heretical. That is absolutely heretical. You cannot say that and also be a Christian at the same time. One scholar said this. He said, multiple surveys reveal the problem in stark terms. According to 82% of Americans, quote, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Some of, some of you thought that. Some of you thought, you're like, where is that? And I can't find that verse. It's because it's not in there. Uh, those identified as born-again Christians did better by 1%. A majority of adults think that the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family. Some of the stats are enough to perplex even those aware of the problem. A Barna poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. That's just bad history, man. That's just lazy history. Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. Those are actually places, right? A considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. We are in big trouble. And I just want to say, like, it does little good if you stand up and say, I believe this book. Everything this book says, I believe. If you don't know what it says, why does it matter? If you don't know what it teaches, if it's not functionally real for you, if it doesn't hold any authority over your life, it doesn't matter that you say you believe it. It's a blind but illiterate approach that is so common in a place like Oklahoma. It's how I was too, and I get it. But it doesn't matter if you don't know what it says. The second way I think we've lost the Bible is what I'll just call the progressive approach or the DIY Bible, right? You know, you cut and paste and you take the parts you like and you avoid the parts you don't or you outright say, well, what it clearly, plainly says here, it doesn't mean, you know. Uh, I know it says this, but, you know, my Western taste today in 2024 would disagree with this approach, so therefore that's wrong, right? This is is the DIY Bible, and it's happening left and right all over the place where people still want to say, yeah, we like the Bible for the most part, the parts that we like, but then the parts that we don't or the parts that are offensive or hard to swallow, we don't want anything to do with those. And again, I just want to say either this is real and true and we should build our lives on it, or let's throw it away. But it can't be a mixture of the two. It's got to be one or it's got to be the other. And these approaches are common, not just out there, but in this very room. We have people in this room that would profess to be Christians that have sort of taken the blind but illiterate approach and taken the progressive approach of, well, certain things in Scripture are good for me, certain things are not. And I just want to say, this is just like what Josiah was facing in 2 Kings, though they were facing slightly different realities. The word of God was literally lost for them. We have functionally lost the word of God. I just want to ask you, when you and Jesus disagree, who wins that argument? When you and Scripture disagree, who gets the final say over your life and how you see the world? Tim Keller says this, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. 
right? So here, here's what we have in our society, and I'll be done with the comparisons, is that you and I today live in a culture that wants the fruit of Scripture, but we've lopped off the tree. We don't want the tree. What I mean is we want things like love. We should love your neighbors. We should fight for equality for all people. We should care for the marginalized and the oppressed. Uh, we should be people of justice and mercy. We value that as a culture and as a society, but the only reason we know to value those items is because the tree of Scripture taught us that. The tree of Scripture grew that fruit, and I just want to ask, how long can we as a culture, as a society, want fruit but no tree? It doesn't work that way. So either way, we need a recovery of the word of God. We need a rediscovery. Well, that's the story we have here of young Josiah rediscovering scripture. So that's the first thing I want you to see is this amazing rediscovery. Look at it with me. This is 2 Kings 22, verse 3. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshalom, the secretary, to the house of the Lord. Now notice what he says. He says, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. I'll explain that in just a minute. And, and, and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. Let me pause here real quickly. Josiah, there's, a, there's a, another story, an, kind of an anchored story to this story in uh, 1 Chronicles that talks about this reality. He felt this desire to not be like his dad Manasseh or his dad Amon. He wanted to be a king after God's own heart. So his very first step was, hey, that, that temple that's been totally desecrated and neglected, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to have some people clean it up. So he hires a bunch of people and he pays them money to clean up and bring back into order the temple of God. That's the story here. Now look at verse 8. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Guess what was sitting in the temple the whole time? The scriptures that have been lost for 57 years. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. In other words, we've done everything you've asked us to do. But then notice, verse 10, he said, then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Very first time that Josiah ever in his life heard the word of God read. Verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. This is an ancient way of showing how devastated you are. This is an ancient way of demonstrating how full of grief and broken you are. And here's what happened. That this story is unbelievable. They're cleaning out the temple. They find this book and they bring this book out. What I love about the story is that they don't just say, wow, an ancient book. It's really cool. And then stick it on a shelf somewhere. But to rediscover this book for them was to rediscover it via reading it. They open it up and they read the words. And it's simply in reading the words 
that they are absolutely full of brokenness and awareness of who God is in his holiness and who they are in their sinfulness. This is a dramatic rediscovery of the word of God. Friends, some of us in the room, maybe many of us, need to rediscover the scriptures today. And I don't just mean like pull your Bible off the shelf. I mean with your eyeballs, sit down and read the words. Some of you need to just read the words of scripture and who knows what might happen to you in your life if you do that. Uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, when I was an even younger pastor, my vision of the types of people that I wanted to see in our church was like, okay, we're going we're gonna to plant this church and we're going to have Navy SEAL Christians. That's what we're going to have. You know, I don't know that I would have said it that way, but what I really wanted was like, no immature people allowed. We're going to be super consistent with all the things that Jesus tells us to do. Everything about our life is going to look different. I mean, we are going to be evangelistic in the highest degree. We're going to be sharing our faith left and right. We, like The pinnacle of what it is to be a Christian, that's the type of people that we are going to have in this church. Now, 10 or 15 years later, my vision has changed quite a bit. What, what, what my new vision is, and like if I could literally see this happen and, and then die, I'd feel like I accomplished something. My new vision is if we could just get the people in this room to read their Bible maybe five days a week, job well done. Job well done. And I'm not saying that to be facetious, and I'm not saying that to be rude or mean. I'm saying that, honestly, that I think the Word of God is so powerful that if the people in this room would just learn to read it and build their lives on what it says, that changes everything, man. That changes everything. I've already alluded to this, but I grew up in church. I know that not all of you did. Some of you, you're not even sure what you think about church or the Bible or any of that, and we're just glad that you're here. I grew up going to church my whole life. My dad is a senior pastor of a church in Dell City right now. Church was like the thing that we did. The Bible was a core part of my life growing up. In fact, my earliest memory of my dad is of him reading the scriptures to me. So the earliest memory I have had of my dad was him reading the Bible to me. So the Bible played a significant role in my family's life and in my upbringing. But here's what's crazy. I somehow managed to go 18 years of my life without ever really reading it cover to cover. And then me and a few friends, we got together and we said, hey, let's in three months' time, let's read the whole Bible cover to cover. And what's unbelievable about that is it completely wrecked my vision of God. I had all these thoughts about God and all these thoughts about myself and our world and reading the Bible, just reading it fast and not even fully paying attention to every detail, just kind of crash course reading the Bible completely changed me. In fact, it's what literally led to my calling into ministry and that church that me and Pastor Aaron Addison planted years ago that ended up uh, merging with Frontline 10 years ago this Sunday, 10 years ago this Sunday, the reason that all happened is because of the work that God did in reading the scriptures. What might happen to you in your life if you opened up the Bible and rediscovered it? Now, I'm not saying you'll become a pastor. Some of you are like, I'm never gonna do that. Uh, I'm not saying you'll become a pastor, but your whole life, in a good way, might be upended just by reading this book. This is a radical rediscovery. Josiah, for the first time, reads it, and he's blown away. And that leads to two things that I want you to see real quickly. The second thing is this ruthless repentance that sets into King Josiah and the people that he led. Look at 2 Kings 22. Look at verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Verse 13. 
Go, he says, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that had been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because the fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Most scholars think that what he found was not just the book of the law in general, but specifically the book of Deuteronomy. Imagine, he's reading Deuteronomy, which is sermons from Moses about God delivering the people of Israel out of their bondage and slavery and all the ways that God in his mercy and in his covenantal love and kindness had been pursuing the people. And then he, he had, from grace, adopted them to be his own and then called them to live certain ways in response to that grace. And he's realizing, we've not done any of the stuff that he's told us to do. And in fact, what we've done is reject God and worship the very pagan gods that he rescued us from in the first place. So notice, fast forward to chapter 23, verse 1. Then the king, it says, he sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing, all the words of the book of the covenant that have been found in the house of the Lord. So here the king is, and he's reading out these words to the people. Verse 3, And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all of his soul and to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Do you see what's happening? He's saying, we're going to do this. And I'm going to do this, and let's do this together. And then notice how ruthless his repentance is. Look at verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priest of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, which was a very popular god of Canaanites at the time, and for Asherah, the goddess of the Canaanites, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those who also had burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heaven. He's cleaning house. Look at verse six. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and he burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. Literally, they brought in male prostitutes into the house of God, the temple, where they where, uh, sorry, in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places with the priests who had made offerings from Gabah to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. And we could go on and on and on. The rest of chapter 23 is him cleaning house. Friends, this is absolutely ruthless immediate, intense, and decisive action against his sin. And how was any of that sparked? It was sparked by reading scripture. He rediscovered the word of God, and it immediately led to this idea of repentance. Now, repentance is a word that we throw out in church, but sometimes we don't define that word. It's sort of a churchy word, but it literally means to have a change of heart. That's what repentance is, that there's certain things that you used to value and love 
And to repent is to have a change of heart about those things. You now hate those things and value and love other things. Charles Spurgeon explains it like this. He says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. G.I. Packer says it this way. I think this is really helpful. He says, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Friends, when the word of God is rediscovered by the people of God, it inevitably, without even trying, leads to ruthless repentance, where you are awakened to the holiness of God, and you are awakened to the brokenness and sinfulness in yourself, and yet the fact that God is committed to you at every turn. And it just does something to you where you want to reorient your life around God. If you're reading Scripture correctly, that's what's happening. The problem, though, I think for many of us, and I'll just talk to those of you in the room that are followers of Jesus. The problem, I think, for those of us who are followers of Jesus is that we often care more about content and data and theological nuances and realities than we do the Word of God confronting us and transforming us. The point of Scripture is not to just learn the data of it. It's not to sit down so that you can win Bible trivia. It's not to sit down and, and, and fully be able to understand it so that you can tell your friends that you understand it. The point of Scripture, friends, you're, you're supposed to read it so that you can be confronted with God. And what you and I need going into this year more than anything else, it's not more money. It's not a better marriage. It's not a marriage. It's not a relationship. It's not a better job. It's not this thing in your life to get fixed or a life hack or whatever. What you and I need more than anything else is more of God's presence. That's what we need. And the way that we experience more of his presence is through scripture. The problem though is that often what happens is that we're sort of confronted with what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls surface level disturbances that we don't ever do anything with. Now, this is a lengthy quote from Lloyd-Jones, but I want to read it because I think it's helpful. Here's what he says. It is possible for us to go on content with just listening to or reading the truth and never applying it to ourselves or examining ourselves in the light of it. Is this not one of the most alarming possibilities in the Christian life? That we may go regularly to church Sunday by Sunday, we may read the Bible and we may read books which help us to understand the Bible, and ever and again we are disturbed. We feel a sense of conviction. We feel the rightness of what is put before us, and we are aware of an inadequacy within ourselves. But unfortunately, we do nothing about it. The feeling comes, and then it goes again. This, it seems to me, is one of the most terrible dangers in connection with the Christian life as a whole, that we are content with a surface disturbance but never really face it, never really get down to the situation and to the problem. We never proceed to consider this disturbance and say, well now, what is this and what can I do about it? Notice what he says. He says, we may feel something during the service and we may say, I'm going to deal with that. But then go out of the service, we start talking to people, we talk about other things. What we felt in the meeting is gone and it never comes back. And this way we spend our lives aware of superficial temporary disturbances which never lead to anything at all. 
It does seem to me that this was the essential trouble with the children of Israel as we found their condition depicted in the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament. Listen to what he says. They would feel slight disturbances and the false prophets would heal them too quickly and we are all false prophets with respect to ourselves. That is one manifestation of this failure to apply the truth. And our excuse, of course, is that we are all too busy. Friends, I just wonder how many times in a week, in a Sunday gathering, when you're with your community group, when you're driving in your car, that you have the, the presence of God meet you with a surface-level disturbance, and he's inviting you into something, and you just don't do anything about it. Actually, the way to combat that, that I feel very frequently in my own heart, is to orient our lives around the Word of God. It leads to repentance, but it also leads to one more thing, and I'll be done. I want you to see this last thing. It leads to restored spiritual practices. Look at 2 Kings 23, verse 21. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. He was the very first king in Israel's history to institute the Passover once again. If you're not familiar with the Passover, it was an annual feast that the people of God were called to do. Basically, uh, they would take a lamb and they would slaughter the lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost. Then they would eat a meal together. They would eat the lamb and they would eat other things in the meal. And that was what they did the night where God passed over the people while they were slaves in Egypt. And he actually killed many of the Egyptians but passed over his own people because of the blood of the lamb. And they were called as the people of God to do this every year. And what's crazy is, No one did it. They all forgot about it. Not even King David, as good as King David was, instituted the Passover. Josiah is the very first king that we read about that says, hey, God told us to do this practice. Let's put that practice back in. Let's actually recover this Passover meal. And I just want to say one of the things that happens when you read Scripture is not just ruthless repentance, but you're taught how to do things It's not just removing things, it's replacing things with the things that God is calling us to do. This is why we need this as we head into 2024. I'm not asking you to be more busy or do more stuff. It's replacing things, but it's also, it's not, I'm sorry, it's not just removing things, it's replacing them with spiritual practices also. So with that in mind, let me close. If I could have you do anything as we start our year, anything, read the word of God, read scripture. Five days a week would be unbelievable. Take Saturday and Sunday off. You already hear it on Sunday anyway. Read five days a week. I get it. It's really hard to understand the Bible. Uh, I've been I, like I get to read the Bible as part of my job, and it's still really challenging. There's still a lot of things in here that are very complicated. And so, let me give you a resource that I think will help you. There's an app called Read Scripture that you can download. It's totally free. 
and it's really helpful. What it has is every time you get to a new book of the Bible, it has a short video by two nerds that kind of talk about the book and explain here's what's happening and here's why you should care and here's the narrative and here's what's going on. It's really helpful. It's like five-minute videos that kind of tell you everything you need to know as you enter into that new book. And then as you're reading throughout Scripture, they have these video themes that they'll give you. If you're reading the law, it's like here's a video on the law to understand that. Or if you're reading something about God's character, it'll highlight a video about that. It's great. It'll track your reading for you so you can either read the whole Bible in a, in a year's time or you can just read it at your own pace and you can choose your own adventure. So I highly recommend that. There's a million other apps out there. There's a million other resources, but Read Scripture is a great one that I want to recommend to you. And friends, if you would just do this five days a week, it would be unbelievable. Some of you, just to throw out, me and my wife and a few friends, we're going to read the whole Bible during Lent, which is a 40-day season. We're going to take 40 days and just do a crash course, like ridiculous reading, like 20 chapters a day for 40 days to read the whole Bible. That, if you've never done something like that, is an unbelievable way to read Scripture. It's really fun. You can get the whole thing knocked out in 40 days. So join us for that. And then I just want to have you ask this question. As you go into 2024, what is Jesus inviting you to remove, to repent of? What is he inviting you to replace it with? What are the spiritual practices that have maybe been neglected in your life that now it's time to really reconsider putting those back into practice. Hey, don't feel shame about this. Don't feel guilt about this. Like, if you're starting now, you're starting now. That's awesome. So come as you are and let's figure it out. But if you could figure out what Jesus is inviting you to remove and what he's inviting you to replace it with and then build that around Scripture, man, I think that 2024 could be the year that Frontline rediscovers Scripture in a fresh way. Amen? All right, let me close with this verse. Chapter 23, verse 25. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his might. According to all of the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. The Bible says this guy was amazing. We've never seen a king like this king before. And that was entirely true until eventually another king stepped on the scene. And this king, Jesus, didn't just simply rediscover the word But John 1 tells us that Jesus came as the word of God. Friends, Jesus didn't just come to remove idolatry from the people. Jesus came to hang on a cross and die for our idolatry. You know what's crazy about this king? Is that this king came from the line of Manasseh. That evil king that we read about, that was Jesus' great, 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 great whatever grandpa who sacrificed his own son to a pagan god, Moloch. But Jesus is the son who has sacrificed on our behalf so that we could experience forgiveness of sins. How crazy is that? Jesus put himself in that family tree so that he could associate with people like us. And friends, Jesus didn't just restore the Passover. He was the fulfillment of that Passover sacrifice. Jesus was the lamb of God who was slain. His blood is, is over our house, as it were, so that the wrath of God passed over and landed on Jesus so that you and I could, could drink the cup of salvation and, and love and forgiveness. Amen?